wanted to pray with you uh, this week. Second Chronicles chapter 33 is where we're going to spend our time together uh, this moment, uh, this morning, excuse me. And I, I mentioned a few moments ago that I, I really believe one of the most pressing questions uh, for, for all of us to work through is how do we make sense of a world that has so much brokenness and heartache in it? And I think I'm hoping that in our time together this morning that we'll, we'll get a clear answer of that in Second Chronicle chapter 33. Maybe not a text that we would immediately go to for such an answer, but I'm hoping that as we walk through this journey together, we'll see that there is hope even in the midst of the storm. Second Chronicle chapter 33, we're, um, we're going to be covering a couple of different points if worked through one by one. I want to make a cumulative case here that the hope that you and I have is not... Um, um, ultimately, it's not who's in office or who's not in office. It's not ultimately be found in ourselves, but it to be found in our, in our risen Savior. That's the only hope that you and I have. And I wanted to see that in the text this morning. So the first thing I wanted to see in our text today is the background of Manasseh. The background of Manasseh. So the first question is, who, who is this guy? Have we, might have been a while since we've read this text or we talked about him at length. So who was Manasseh. Well, you, you learn about him in the previous chapter, chapter 31 and 32. First, we meet a guy named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was Manasseh's father. Hezekiah was also king of Judah, and he was one of the few kings that actually did pretty well uh, overall. Uh, he had some shortfalls, more on that in just a second. But in chapter 31, Hezekiah goes to all uh, around the land, and he destroys all the false idols, destroys all the pagan shrines. And not only did he destroy all of them because the people have been worshiping them all, but then he starts building new shrines, new altars, and saying, listen, this is the way you are supposed to worship worship the one true God, not by doing all these pagan rituals, not by doing uh, what you had learned from the other nation, but this is the way you are to do it. And so he, sp- he spent all this time reforming the land, reforming the people, and this is how you ought to worship God. Then in, verse, in chapter 32, we meet another king, Sennacherib, and he was the king of Assyria, the neighboring country and the enemy country, and he comes and invades Judah. And not only did he invade them, he spent all of his time blaspheming the living God. And he tells the people of, of, of Judah, he says, listen, do you see all the other countries that don't exist anymore? I destroyed them. He takes credit for them. And he says, listen, all the other countries that you maybe you should heard whispered about over the years, they're all gone because I destroyed them. Now, what to keep you from being like every one of those other nations? How in the world are you going to possibly stand up to my might? If basically what the king says to Hezekiah. And his plan, if you read chapter 32, basically his plan was, he said, listen, we've got time and we've got resources, neither of which you have. And so what we're going to do, what Sennacherib says, he said, what we're going to do is we're just going to wait you out. We're just going to surround you and eventually you're going to run out of water eventually you're going to starve. And when that time comes, then we're going to come in and you're going to be just another notch in our belt. We're just going to take over and destroy you just like we did with everybody else. And then something incredible happened. The second half of chapter 32, Hezekiah prays. And not only only does he pray, but God hears because we have the assurance that when we pray, God hears. And God does this incredible miracle. In 2 Kings 19, there's a parallel account of this story. And in 2 Kings 19, it says that an angel of the Lord just wiped, just mowed down 
all of the army, 185,000 Assyrian dead overnight. And if you're doing the math on that, that's about two times of Tiger Stadium. About twice the capacity of Tiger Stadium is gone because God answers prayer. And because of that, Santa Carib wisened up and realizes that the God of the people of Israel are a little bit different than the other gods that they had, that they had defeated. This one actually answers. And so then he goes home and kind of uh, had his tail caught between his legs. And then the second and the last part of uh, Second Chronicles uh, 32, Hezekiah gets sick and he nearly dies, but thankfully God heals him. Now here's unfortunately where the, the story takes a, a turn. Now for some reason, it's not entirely clear why, but for some reason, after God had done all this stuff for Hezekiah, at this point in chapter 32, it says that he gets prideful. He gets prideful, he gets big-headed, maybe because of the incredible military victory, maybe because of his money. We don't, we don't know exactly what it is, but for whatever reason, he gets prideful. And in verse 25 of, 30, of chapter 32, it says that the wrath of God came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. We see here that, that, that sin trickles downward, that sin affects other people. And so we see here that this, if we keep reading, we see that this wakes Hezekiah up. And thankfully, the chapter ends on a good note with, that he repents and God spares them. That's how that chapter ends. And then Hezekiah dies. And then his son, Manasseh, which we see in chapter 33, Manasseh, who's 12 years old, 12 years old now becomes the king and he becomes the ruler for the next 55 years. And unfortunately for Manasseh, just like his father, he needs to be brought low in order to wake him up. And that's where we're at here in our chapter. So first we see the background of Manasseh. Now I wanted to see the actions of Manasseh, the action of Manasseh. And we see here very clearly at the very start that he is known as a terrible king. That he did, in verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That it wasn't just that he did bad things, although that was certainly part of it. But is that, is that in the way that he did those bad things? If you remember back in the Old Testament, the whole, one of the main reasons why God rescued the people of Israel was to make them different than everybody else. He tells them that time and time and time again. You are going to be different. I am rescuing you from Egypt. I am taking you as a people for myself. And you are going to be different than every other country, every other nation that exists. You're going to be the example to everybody else. That's the command. And he certainly knew that. But he, he decided to disregard that. But it wasn't just that he did bad things, but that he acted like all those other pagan nations. Instead of being different, he was being just like them. And actually even gets even worse than that. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, it said that he was even worse than them. So it wasn't that he just did the same things. He did, even, he did them even worse. That God had miraculously provided for him and he spit in his face. And the question becomes, but what did he do? We did two things, namely. He built and he burned. He built and he burned. The first thing he did was he built. You remember, again, chapter 31, it's all about how Hezekiah destroyed all these pagan shrines, all these pagan altars. Not only did Manasseh build, rebuild those and build more, but rather he built new ones that were dedicated specifically to other pagan deities known as Baal or Baal and Asherah. 
Now, who were they? What was Baal all about? Well, Baal was, was the god, uh, one of the gods of uh, the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were the people that God had driven out in the book of Exodus. God had driven out the, people, the Canaanites away from the land for the people of, of Israel to inhabit. And in chapter 23 of Exodus, God actually tells the people, listen, I'm driving out the Canaanites because they're not going to be good. They're actually going to be a snare, the word that he used. He going, they're going to be a snare to you. That you are going to be seeking to worship me, and these people are going to actively be preventing that from happening. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the people not to worship other gods because they're going to lead them astray. And Manasseh, who certainly knew that, decided to completely disregard it. The Canaanites were an interesting bunch. They were uh, polytheists. They, mo- they worshipped multiple gods. If you remember studying Greek mythology, perhaps back in high school, you remember they had like the pantheon of gods. You had Zeus. You had all the other ones that were there. They, they kind of had something very similar to that. Something very similar to that. They believe in a supreme god called El, E-L. And they, that god had a, uh, uh, the supreme god was El. And they had like a mother god named Asherah. So you had El, you had Asheroth, and they had a bunch of kids, at least 60 or 70 sons, and one of those sons was Baal. One of those sons was Baal. And Baal was known as the god of the storm, of the weather, of thunder, of fertility, kind of wore a couple of different hats. And this god had a rival, because of course they all did, named Mutt. And Mont was the god of death, and they constantly did battle. And so what the Canaanites believed was you had Baal and you had Mont, and they were in the, they're constantly going head to head. And so whenever the rain would dry up and you get a famine on the land, one of the reasons they thought that was happening was because the two gods were battling each other. And so because they were battling, it was having an effect on the real world. And what they believed, they believed that Baal was the god of life, again, a god of fertility, while Mott was the god of death. Now, if you're a pagan cult and you worship the god of life, well, how do you show your worship? How do you demonstrate your worship? Well, one of the ways that you would demonstrate it is you would replicate what you believe that god is doing. They believe that, that Baal were the god of fertility. And so, and, and the God of rain, all these sorts of things. So one of the ways that they believed that Baal did that was by having sex with other goddesses. And so any time that Baal is getting together with another goddess, sexually, is helping it rain on the land. Now, if you're worshiping a god like that, well, how do you show that worship? Well, you do by recreating it. And so what the, what the Canaanites would do is they would have temple prostitutes in these pagan shrines And the way that you would show your devotion to these false gods is by engaging in the same activity that you believe they were doing, namely having sex with temple prostitutes. Both men and women were prostitutes. That's how they showed their worship. That's how they showed their devotion. Obviously, this is much different than the true God of Scripture. This is completely antithetical than what the actual God is. If you look at verse 5, it says that the host of heaven, this is probably representing something like something that was created, the sun, the moon, the stars, and this is what the people are now, are now worshiping. Instead of worshiping the one that created the sun, the moon, the stars, they're now worshiping those created things themselves. And isn't that basically what Romans 1 is all about? 
Isn't Romans 1 basically about instead of worshiping the creator, we're now worshiping the created things? Further, remember how when you start, every January 1 and you start your, your yearly Bible reading plan and you're ambitious and you're ready, you're going, to, you're going to read cover to cover, include the maps at the end. And you're going to start in Genesis and you're going to work all your way through and Genesis is going great. We joke about this every year. We, Genesis is going great. Exodus is action-packed. And then you get to Leviticus. And then you get to Numbers. And then you give up. Well, remember, there's all these really interesting laws all in those two books. I mean, all joking aside, there's really all these really interesting laws. Maybe you remember Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. It says, you are the son of the Lord your God. You shall not cut, you shall not cut yourself or make any baldness on your forehead for the dead. Now, why would God tell them to do that? So obscure. I don't know about you, but I, I haven't struggled with making baldness on my forehead for the dead. That's not been something I've struggled with. Maybe you have. I don't know. Well, the reason why God tells them that, that's exactly what the Canaanites were doing. That whenever they lamented the dead, they would often cut their bodies. There was a, a popular text during that time period. They, they believed that Baal, for a brief time, died, and then he came back to life. So there, was a, there was a popular text um, that was being passed around. And this is how they, whenever Baal died, and they were thinking about that, this is what it says. They cut their cheeks and their chin. They lacerate their forearms. They plow their chest like a garden. Like a veil, they lacerate their back. They lift their voice and shout, Baal is dead. And so part of their worship, part of their lamenting is to mutilate the body. And God, and what seemed to be this very obscure, out of nowhere rule, that, that's the context. The God is saying, you're not going to be like them. More than that, specifically in Deuteronomy 23, the Israelites were told, like in no uncertain terms, do not take or do not be a temple prostitute. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 17 through 18, literally everything about Canaanite worship went against the one true God. Everything. There was no Venn diagram overlap where there's some commonality. Everything that they did was against God. Manasseh knew that, and yet he built shrines anyway. He built altars anyway. Not only did he rebuild the destroyed ones, but then he even built more, and then he put them in the very temple of God. If you look at verse 4, it says that only God's name was to be worshipped there. Only God's name was to be worshipped there, but yet he worshipped other gods, and he even made an idol and set it in that house. This is rampant and awful disobedience. Not only did he build, but he also burned. This takes an absolutely tragic turn. Verse 6 that it says that he burned his son as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and necromancers. Again, this is exactly what the Canaanites did. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we read about a Moabite king who sacrificed his son as an offering to his God. And this uh, valley of the son of Hinnom, this is a uh, place that was outside the southwest border of Jerusalem. 
And if I were to ask you, let's imagine I'm a visitor from out of town, and I were to ask you, what's New Orleans like? Never been there before, describe New Orleans to me. Chances are the first word that you would say is Bourbon Street. When, we, when t- people tend to think of New Orleans, they think of Bourbon Street, or they think of beignets. Like, they're, just, they're just known for those things. The, what the Valley of Hinnom was known for was child sacrifice. Whenever you said Valley of Hinnom, everybody knew what you were talking about, talking about child sacrifice. And here he burned his sons. More on that in just a moment. If you look at uh, verse 2, literally everything he did, it against a direct, it did a direct violation against the command of God. And again, what the writer of the Chronicles kind of notes and alludes to here is that Manasseh knew better. That's why in verses 4 and 7 through 8, it repeats what God has said, because he's alluding to the fact that Manasseh knew better, and yet he chose otherwise. And in verse 9, again, it says that he would even worse than the nation before him. That's how bad it was. Now, if you're like me, and I think that you are, it's very tempting for us to look at stuff like this and say, I would never do that. I would never do anything remotely close to that. Now, I believe you that you would not sacrifice your children. There are certainly things that we do that directly go against what we know God has said. So here are the three takeaways from this section. That Number one, we're more like, we're more like Manasseh than we might think. We're more like Manasseh than we might think. And here's what I mean by that. In verse 10, it said that God spoke to them, but they didn't listen. And of course, we do the same thing. God speaks. God has spoken, literally. And we don't listen. This might be surprising to you, but there's actually, when we think about paganism, we think about witchcraft, we think about sorcery, paganism is actually on the rise in today's society. It's one of the fastest growing religions, if you want to call that, in the country. Just last year, shortly before Halloween, and I would imagine we'll probably see an update on this in the next couple of weeks, but NBC News ran an article called Why Paganism and Witchcraft Are Making a Comeback. Why Paganism and Witchcraft Are Making a Comeback. And the article talks about how Wicca, paganism, folk magic, and other new, tra- new age tradition is one of the fastest growing spiritual paths in America. And the article is asking the question why, and they interview some people who call themselves Wiccans and things like that. And one of the reasons it comes up, one of the reasons why it's so popular is that people can kind of take a cafeteria approach to things. And they can say, well, I like this little bit, and I like this little bit, and I like this little bit, and I like, you know, praying to Mary, and I like this and this, and I can kind of combine and make a potluck version of my own religion. It's one of the reasons why it's so popular. The witchcraft hashtag on Instagram has over 7 million posts, has 11 billion views on TikTok, or, as is known in the community, witch talk. This is a growing um, following. We don't really think about it that much, but it's very much growing. But even if we're not engaging in witchcraft, we certainly build our own altars, don't we? We certainly build our own altar. We worship things that aren't God on a regular basis, whether they're sports, whether they're our jobs, 
whether it's money, whether it's our looks, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's fame, whatever it happens to be, there are things that we look at in our life that for that moment we say, that is more important to me than God. Now I would imagine we probably don't say it quite in those words, but we certainly live that out. Manasseh sacrificed his sons and man. If there was ever a sacrament in, in America, it's abortion. America is one of the most liberal countries in the world when it comes to abortion. We're one of only seven countries that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks. One of seven. We're incredibly liberal. But think about, think about the logic behind abortion. If we reject the idea that life has intrinsic value, that because you are a human, you are worthy of dignity and respect and life, if you reject that, then we can draw the line wherever we want. We can say, well, no, I, I support abortion after 20 weeks, or I support abortion after 30 weeks, or maybe I support abortion if it's not the sex that I want it to be. Now you might be thinking, well, surely nobody does that. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. The, uh, the Atlantic, which is a popular uh, magazine and, and publication online, just this past year, they ran an article about an abortionist named Warren Hearn. Warren Hearn, and I'm quoting directly. Warren Hearn has been performing late abortion for half a century. So if you don't think that late-term abortions happening are happening, they certainly do. In the Atlantic, it's publicizing that. In this article, uh, Warren talked about how he had done an abortion for a woman who had a girl, and she didn't want a girl. So the woman came to him and said, I don't want a girl, I want an abortion. And he said, okay. He said there were actually two, one of two abortions that he had done specifically because of sex selection. Now you might be thinking, well, surely all those people who are going in there are um, having medical emergencies or something catastrophic has happened to them or any number of reasons. Surely nobody in their right mind wants a late-term abortion. His words, at least half and sometimes more of all the women who come to him don't have any life-threatening issues or any sort of devastating medical diagnosis. They simply don't want the baby anymore. Late-term abortion, just because, mainly because, they don't want to be pregnant and they don't want the baby. Do late-term abortions happen? They absolutely do. Do late-term abortions happen or do abortions happen because they don't like whether it's a boy or a girl? They absolutely do. But again, if life is not intrinsically worth protecting just because it's a human life, then wherever you draw that line, it's entirely arbitrary. It's completely arbitrary. We're more, and our, and our society is more like Manasseh than we realize. Number two, takeaway here, we can't try to blur the line between true religion and false religion. We can't try to draw the line between true religion and false religion. Now, we can't try to water down the essence of Christianity and what makes Christianity Christianity to make it more appealing. That when God's word what it said is what it says. That we can't compromise to make it more appealing and more intriguing. When God says that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life, that's what marriage is. When God says that you're made in the image, in his image, 
and you're made male or female, that, that's what it means. When God says that Jesus alone is the only way to salvation, that's what it means. That we can't water it down. Number three, we also must remember what God had done in the past. Did you notice everything that he did, again, that Manasseh did? That Manasseh literally did everything that was against what God has said not to do all throughout the years. But what's also interesting, and one of the commentators I read pointed this out, not only that, he, he failed to remember what had already been done through Elijah. Remember Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament? Remember what happened with Elijah? Remember how Baal was seen, again, Baal was seen as a, a God who controlled the rain, but God, through Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, in 1 Kings chapter 17, God, through Elijah, caused a drought. So Baal was the God of the rain, but the true God calls the drought. Baal is seen as the God of fertility, but through Elijah, God raised the widow's son. Baal was seen as the God who controls lightning and fire. But what's the story we most likely remember about Elijah with Mount Carmel? When what? God sent lightning and fire down to earth. At every point that Elijah does something, or excuse me, that Baal does something, supposedly, the true God steps in. And when we forget what God had done in the past, we're going to be more likely to neglect him in the present. When you and I forget what God had done in the past, we are more likely to neglect God in the present. We see the actions of Manasseh. We also see the, the discipline of God. We see the discipline of God in verse 11 here. And this is a really drastic action. And you see here that God leads the Assyrians, who were the Israelites' uh, enemies, and he leads them to the people, and he allows Manasseh to be captured. But did, you know, did you notice the really interesting detail here? He said not only is he captured, but that he's absolutely humiliated. And, and here's why we know he was humiliated. In verse 11, it said that he was captured with hooks. What that means is they put hooks through his nose, and that's how they chained him. They put a hook through his nose, and that was the leash by which they dragged him out of the city. He's the king. And he'd been brought low. Absolutely humiliated. Not just captured, but absolutely humiliated. They put a hook through his nose. They bound him. He goes from being a king to being a prisoner, from being a high place to a low place. But I don't think, if you look at verse 6 real quick, again, I, I think that we don't tend to like the idea of God being angry. Isn't God love after all? But what I want to caution us with and want to remind us with that if God wasn't good, then he wouldn't hate sin. That it is because God is good that he is angry at sin. Put another way, the, the opposite of anger isn't love. The opposite of anger is indifference. The opposite of anger isn't love, it's indifference. And we see God is certainly not indifferent to sin. God certainly isn't indifferent to evil. He acts out against it. And so Manasseh learned the hard way here that walking away from God didn't lead to more freedom, as you and I tend to think sometimes, but it literally enslaved him. It literally put him in chains. And if you remember in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, something very similar happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was another king who really thought a lot of himself, and God humbled him by, and by taking away everything that he had. 
and humbled him. So God disciplines Manasseh here because of his rebellion and his blatant disregard for God. But number four, we see the response from Manasseh. We see the response from Manasseh. We, have, we see two things here. First, we see a changed heart, and then we see a changed life. A changed heart and a changed life. The first thing is a changed heart in verses 12 and 13. We see how he responds, that Manasseh had been brought low, and we see how he responds. He calls out to God. He calls out to God, and he seeks him out. He's humbled. He's woken up. Instead of ignoring God, he seeks God out. And God, who is good, keeps his promises. God, who is good, keeps his promises. And I don't know that that's something that we're quite used to. Or maybe that that truth is quite sunk in. That God is good and God keeps his promises. That God is faithful. And I wonder if one of the reasons that we might struggle with that idea is because we very much live in a world that isn't like that at all. That is not faithful. We live in a world that did not keep its promises. Where if you've wronged somebody that you know for sure that you can be forgiven. Particularly in the age of social media where every mistake, every wrong thing that you say can be recorded and used against you. There's this real fear of always being found out. Could you do something in the past? And it's just, it's just looming over you. Maybe, in 2015, maybe you remember that in 2015, there was a breach in the Ashley Madison uh, database. And Ashley Madison was a website whose sole purpose, the sole purpose of this website was to help organize affairs between married people. Their slogan was, life is short, have an affair. Life is short, have an affair. So the website existed to help married people cheat on their spouses. So well, in 2015, the database got hacked, and the master list of everybody who was on it, who had ever made an account, was released to the public, downloaded, uh, available to be downloaded by anybody who wanted to. It was awful. So many lives ruined. Well, in 2020, it came up again. And in 2020, Forbes came out with an article. It says, Ashley Madison hack, excuse me, Ashley Madison hack returned to haunt its victims. 32 million users now watch and wait. And what was going on was people had hacked that information again and they were reaching out to the people that were on it and saying, hey, listen, unless you give me money, I'm going to share this with your family. Unless you pay me, I'm going to share this with your wife, with your husband, with your kids. Everybody's going to know that you were on here. And so they were using it to extort, to extort them. And that, but did you hear the, the article headline? It now haunts its victims. And now the 32 million users watch and wait. This is what we're like with our sin. Where we all have skeletons in our closet and we're watching and waiting, hoping nobody ever finds out. We may not have an account on Ashley Madison, but aren't, don't we all share the collective shame and the things that we've done in our lives? I know I do. Do we have sin? Of course we do. If you're here this morning and you're ashamed, you're ashamed of your sin, you're in good company. You're in good company. You're, you're among friends. The good news is that there's hope in Christ. And I want to point you to Psalm chapter 130. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? Well, nobody. 
Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, you may be revered, you may be, in, you may be awed. And in 1 John chapter 1, we have this promise that if we confess our sin, God is just and faithful to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you have skeletons in your closet, you're amongst friends. There's hope in the risen Christ. Manasseh had a changed heart and may his repentance compel and inspire repentance on our behalf as well. He also had a changed life. Look at verses 13 through 16. He also had a changed life. That a changed heart, by definition, lead to a changed life. And you see here that he, that he turned away everything that, from everyone, everything that he had done before. In verse 14, he built up the city. He fortified the city. In verses 15 and 16, he teared down all those idols, all the altars. And he restores the altar of the Lord. That when the grace of God has captivated our heart, then naturally, well I should say supernaturally, we are then living differently. We then live differently. And in verse 17, there's a sad note here I want to mention before, before we move on. Notice how in verse 17, the people are still worshiping at these altars. And I wonder if this has something to say that maybe for the people that, God, that Manasseh had repented and tr- sin trickled downward, it affects everybody else. But I wonder if for the people, they, would, they hadn't quite arrived there yet. There was kind of a compromise. Like, oh yeah, we're going to serve the true God, but we're going to keep the altars. A half compromise of sorts. But then we see the legacy of Manasseh in verses 18, 18 through 20. We see the legacy of Manasseh. In verse 19, it said that Manasseh died, and it gives uh, the rest of the cha- section, it gives a quick recap of what he had done. An, an obituary, if you will. It seemed good, right? Like, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good note to end on. Verses 19 through 20. That's a, that's a great legacy. Actually, it's not at all. Look at verse 21. We stopped there, but I wanted to look at verse 21 through 25. In verse 21 through 25, we read about his son named Amon. And it's, elsewhere, it's written Amos. Not, not the same Amos as the one in, in the Bible book. It's another Amos, but it's Amon, Amos, the same person. But it says his son starts to take over, and his son restarts the same evil pattern. It says that he did what was evil on the side of the Lord. But unlike his father, he didn't repent, and he ended up being killed by his servants. That Amon simply restarts this wheel of wickedness. And the question comes, will it ever stop? This part of scripture is called the, the historical books. It, it judges through Second Chronicles. And what's interesting about this specific stretch of history, judges through Second Chronicles, the phrase, they did what was evil on the side of the Lord is said over 40 times. 40 times what would evil, they did what was evil on the side of the Lord over and over and over and over. This is the drumbeat of the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. It's a vicious cycle of people following after God, loving God, turning him away, being judged, rightly judged for it, them calling out for God, he rescues them, and then it just cycles over and over and over again. This is the story of the Old Testament. 
But if you think about it, this is also the story of our lives. This is the story of our world. Where we have seasons where we follow after God, but then we stray away into sin, we get caught in our sin, we get convicted in our sin, we call out to God, he rescues us, and the cycle starts over and over and over again. Maybe to that, we take Jesus seriously, where he said, abide in me, from apart from me, you can do nothing. May we plead with God and beg God, God, hold me close to yourself. My heart wanders, Lord, I know it, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Hold me fast to yourself. We see this cycle of brokenness time and time and time again. We see it in Manasseh, we see it in Amos and Amon. We see it in our own lives, we see it in the world. Will it ever end? Will this cycle ever end? That's the question of the Old Testament. That's also the question of our lives. Will it ever end? Will things ever get better? I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, this is hundreds of years later, we get the answer to our question. And I would imagine, I would suspect that for some of us, we get tempted to skip over the, the, the first couple of verses of uh, Matthew chapter 1. After all, it's just a family tree. Nothing important about a family tree, right? In Matthew chapter 1, we see the family tree of Jesus. And first it starts with Abraham, and then it goes through David. And we might be tempted to skip down to the nativity of Jesus. That's what we used to for every Christmas, right? But I want to encourage you to not do that. Look at verse 10. Look at chapter 1, verse 10, where we read about Hezekiah. Remember that's who we started with this morning, Hezekiah. And look at verse 10. It says, Hezekiah... Talk about the birth, the, the family line of Jesus. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And it goes on and on and on, and then drop down to verse 16. And then go down to Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And the very line of Jesus we see Manassas and Amon, the people we just read about. In this very line of Jesus, we see where the cycle stops. It stops with Christ. The brokenness of this world ultimately stops and sees us with the risen Savior. Jesus is called the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior that we are looking for. He's the Savior that breaks the cycle. When will it stop? It stops with Jesus. That Jesus enters human history and he gives us the answer that we're looking for. We're looking at all this brokenness, all this destruction, all this heartache, all this shame, all this grief. And yet in Christ, the cycle stops. The opposite of anger isn't, lo- isn't love, it's indifference. And God shows how much he cares. God shows how indifferent he's not in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus never did what was evil, like Manasseh, like me, like you, but he did the exact opposite. That Jesus didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I are called to live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And by placing our trust in him, that cycle ends and we are saved in Christ. 
the cry that we all have is, when will it get better? And ultimately, the hope that you and I have is that the risen Christ says, in me. In me. We don't have to worry about being found out because Jesus already knows about it. We can rest in his finished work on our behalf, call upon his name, and be saved. Will I still sin? Yeah. But the blood of Christ covered all my sin. And paradoxically, I said, the blood of Christ has covered all my sin, but, and yet I have been walked as white as snow. That's the hope that we have. So what, where are you this morning? What do we do with this? Well, we're all like Manasseh, in need of a savior. He repented and turned to God. Have you? He repented and turned to God. Have you? He, his life was visibly changed by his relationship with God. Has yours? What I want to invite you this morning is to rejoice in the fact that yes, we live in a world of suffering. Yes, we live in a world of pain. If you take God out of the picture at all, it actually makes things worse because there is no answer for that. But yet we have here in scripture the promise of eternal life because of what Jesus had done on our behalf. So may we rest in the finished work of Christ that because Jesus lived the life you and I called to live and yet we didn't, he paid for our sins that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're gonna sing in just a moment. I would love to talk with you about that. Brother Jared would love to talk with you about that. You'd like to talk more. But have you repented? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus this morning? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your steadfast love again. I thank you for the hope that we have in the risen Christ. That yes, our sins are many, but yet your mercy is so much more. May we help us to see that we all need a savior and help us to see that Jesus truly is that savior. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, which is so amazing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.